Welcome to the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. Today, we'll be discussing the article titled Cortical Compensation for Hearing Loss, but Not Age in Neural Tracking of the Fundamental Frequency of the Voice. Joining us today are Editor-in-Chief Professor Nina Ramirez and author Dr. Yana Vankinet. So let's get started. Hi, Nino. Thank you very much, Jamie. And also, thank you so much, Yana, for participating today on the podcast series. What we want to do, Yana, is uh, learn from you and discuss the neural mechanism leading to hearing loss, which I believe is particularly important right now, as we might expect an even worse situation when a whole generation of kids gets older that are continuously listening to music on their cell phones. But, but maybe we're thinking, or I am thinking too simplistic, but we can discuss it. You know, we can discuss the practical implication. But let's start first with a review of your study and your experimental approach. So, Jana, in this study, you characterize hearing loss and cortical compensation, and you use EEG-based responses to assess the relative contribution of cortical and also subcortical inputs on the hearing. So could you perhaps start with explaining this approach to the listener? Yes, yes, of course. Uh, so in this study, we actually used a framework called neural tracking. And in that framework, we work with participants, we present them a story, and then we measure their brain activity with EEG. And then afterwards, we, uh, in the analysis, we either try to reconstruct the story that they listen to from the EEG or the other way around. So we take the uh, story and we try to predict what their EEG response will look like. And the better that we are able to do that, we know the better the stimulus information, the story information is encoded into the brain activity. So that's a very interesting approach for us to understand how the brain processes speech. And in this article in specific, we were looking at how the brain encodes the fundamental frequency of the voice. So that's the pitch of the voice and it's determined by how fast your vocal folds uh, vibrate. Yeah, Jana, I mean, uh, for me, it sounds like science fiction. So is this like machine learning? You use like backward and, and forward modeling to make these predictions in the EEG channels. So how does it work? Yeah, so it's not machine learning yet. <laughs> uh-huh, <laughs> you okay. can do it with machine learning too. It works as well. Um, but it's actually simpler. Uh, it's just linear modeling. So we try to find a linear combination of all the EEG channels. We have 64 on a, a like a head cap of EEG. And we try to find a linear combination of those that will help us predict the, uh, the speech. And I want to be very clear. It's not like we can do mind reading or something. <laughs> we only can predict like 5% of the speech or maybe 20%. It's not like we can just uh, measure the brain activity and know what you were thinking or know what you were listening to. It's not like that, but we can try to do it. And because we can do it a little bit, we can find information about how your brain is processing speech. That is fascinating. And, and so what did you learn from this approach? Yeah, so what we actually learned from this is the differences that occur when you get older in yeah, just speech processing and also if you have a hearing loss. And to kind of make it more specific, we found that if you get older, in general, you have a decreased encoding of the fundamental frequency of the voice in your brain activity. And in contrast, we see that if you have a hearing loss, 
you will also experience this decrease. But because you have the hearing loss, your brain tries to um, yeah, make your speech perception better. So it's kind of getting this compensation mechanism started. And this compensation mechanism means that in the cortex, in the brain, there are additional areas of the brain being recruited to help with speech perception. And this boosts the way that this fundamental frequency of the voice is in captured in the, in the neural activity. So we see a response decrease with age, but we see actually an increase for those with a hearing impairment. And that was a, a bit unexpected for us. That is fascinating. You know, I have an uncle who makes uh, glasses for visual, and, and he told me also that it's so different from person to person that, uh, you know, people can compensate for the lack of visual perception and, and do this to the brain. And so I think it's similar than obviously like the, the hearing. Now, I have a, another more specific question. So you find that the F0 response was on average reduced with advancing age. Is this what you just told us? Is, is this the F0 response? Can you explain that perhaps? Yeah, so the F0 response is essentially just how your brain is encoding the F0 when it's listening to speech. So can you find the same oscillations? So F0 is just an oscillation of around 100 to 300 hertz that varies with the speaker, uh, the voice of the speaker. Can you find the same oscillation in the brain activity? If you can find it very strongly, we say there is a strong F0 response. If you cannot find it, then there is a weaker F0 response. Interesting. And so basically here you, you picked an age of 58. So you had like a, around 50 year old people and you had the normal hearing group and then you had the hearing impaired group. And basically what you find is that the, the cortical contribution is basically stronger in a way to, to compensate for that. But, but you describe also a loss of posterior temporal activity. So which brain areas are implicated for this and what do you mean with the loss of this cortical contribution of this particular area? There was a lot of information that is in one question, so I'm going to take it a bit step by step here. So first of all, indeed, we had a group of participants with different ages. It was from about 20 years old to 70 years old, and indeed, the mean was about 85 years old. And then we had a second group of people with a hearing impairment, and they also spent a wide age range. And these participants were age matched to the normal hearing group, also with different ages. So that's really important because we see in research often that if you recruit a participant group with hearing loss, they will be older people. And if you uh, recruit a group of participants from normal hearing, they will be young people. So you really need to do that age matching, otherwise it will not work out. And so that's a very important point and a very strong point about the data set we used. That's from my former colleague, Lien de Cruy. I definitely want to mention her here today as well. But now more about the subcortical uh, cortical effects that we see. So we see a general decrease in the response if you get older. And the reason why we think this is, is just in general, your body is yeah, deteriorating a bit. You have less precision in the phase locking because this response is based on phase locking of your neural activity to the stimulus. So all everything gets a bit precise. And because you're in a quite high frequency range of around 100, 300 hertz, you start noticing that things go a little bit less well. But the main difference is if you look at the cortical contributions to the response in specific, they are only there for the very low frequencies. So they're 
typically there for a male voice at around 100 hertz. They won't be there for my voice that is at around 200 hertz. And what we think is happening, because you have all uh, this yeah, deterioration in the auditory system, is that this frequency limit shifts a little lower. So instead of being at around 150 hertz, now it's shifting to maybe 80 hertz. And that's actually below the possible range for F0 in speech. So we see that these cortical neurons are no longer able to phase lock to the F0. And therefore, this very big, uh, strong component of the response is gone in the older adults, but not in the younger adults. And this is our hypothesis why we think that with age, the response reduces. So this is interesting. So, so you think, actually, it will be easier for an older person to, to listen then to an uh, a male with a low voice compared to a female with a higher voice? Or is that, did I misunderstand it? In theory, yes. Well, yes, that's what I wanted you to understand, but I need to be very careful here. It's not because your neurons are phase locking to the F0 that you're understanding speech better. That's a jump too far. We're just testing how good can your neurons face look to something, but speech perception is way more than that alone. So your statement is a bit of an overgeneralization of what we found. Perfect. Oh, wow. Okay. That was very, very helpful. Now, I think you, you write somewhere in the text that you think that this could be due to a change in temporal coding due to, to changes in inhibitory neurons. Do we know anything about this from, let's say, animal models or so? Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy that you add from animal models because from our broad EEG uh, measurements from the scalp, we really cannot have this very precise information about what happens on a cellular level. Mm -hmm. But we do see from other papers that there is this theory that if inhibition decreases, and we think that that decreases because the brain wants to boost the response that it is getting because it's noticing that something is wrong in the auditory input, it wants to get more, so it makes less inhibition. But it's a bit like you need inhibition to have very uh, precise neural coding. If you drive with a car without brakes, you cannot steer that precisely. So I think of it like that. Your neural system cannot phase lock to yeah, higher frequencies that easily if it doesn't have the inhibition in place. And therefore, we think that you lose this yeah, capability to phase lock to these higher frequencies. But actually, you increase your capability to uh, phase lock to lower frequencies. So if you do the same study with the speech envelope, which is lower frequency than the fundamental frequency of the voice, you actually see an increasing response with age. So that's really an interesting uh, mechanism, I think. A little crazy idea, but, but if you make these hearing aids, would it be possible to, to basically try to down change the, the, the frequency to make it lower what you hear so so your brain can process it it easier you know is, is mm -hmm. it possible to you can modulate these frequencies um i think you could um, but i don't know if it's gonna help because those people that we saw these deficits in with yeah not being able to encode the f zero so well they have very good speech understanding. So it's not that they have issues with speech understanding. We just know that in general, it works a little bit less. And if there's a lot of noise going on, probably these things will start taking part, but may maybe more about separating 
a male voice from a female voice in a restaurant scenario. It's not like a speech in quiet that they will uh, struggle with speech understanding. Fascinating. Could it be that the, the hearing impairment tells us also something about other, you know, age-related changes that go on in, in other neural functions? Could this be like a very sensitive indicator for the loss of other age-related functions and, and perhaps a sign of a neurocognitive decline? Or is that, again, going too far? I, yeah, I only study hearing, so I only know that. But I do think that the neurocognitive decline is, a, is an interesting factor. We see uh, studies from the past few years that are always linking hearing loss to dementia. And that's I definitely, I think, something very interesting to see. So we see that people with hearing loss, they have aggravated cognitive decline. They have more chance of having dementia, but we don't really know exactly what the link is between the two. And it could be on a neural level that there is some kind of common cause uh, of their neural system declining and that hearing loss is a, a first sign. But I, I'm really not sure of that. Personally, I think maybe it's more related to the mental effects that hearing loss has. So if you have hearing loss and you're always sitting at a table with people, but you don't understand them, you try to socially withdraw a bit. And that's, of course, very sad to see. But those people also will just have less opportunities to use their brain and to get new input and to think about things and to keep up with what is going on around them. And I think that that is more impacting their yeah, if bad evolution, getting less cognitive capacities and maybe increasing dementia. Uh, but that's all like how I think about it. I, and I don't have any proof for that. But of course, it's it's so difficult to do these human studies. And so I'm, I'm really impressed. And and it's also great, Jana, that you're so careful in, in, in interpreting these, these data. But but I think uh, you, you have to ultimately use humans to to understand what's going on here, because you know, like we have learned speech and, and learned languages, which is so difficult to have in an animal model. So, so how does now the, the speech perception relate to the actual hearing impairment? I think you mentioned it, but could you elaborate on this again? So in the group with people that uh, had a hearing impairment, we did see that the severity of their hearing impairment related to the zero tracking response that we found, but we didn't really find a relation with their actual speech perception tested with speech stimuli, because often these tests are done in noise and our own measure or the data that we looked was in, in silence. Perfect. Now, there are some reports that, that you know, older people report speech understanding problems, Yet often they have normal clinical audiograms. Is this a problem associated with the clinical audiograms or, or how could you assess what their problem really is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the audiogram, of course, is a really great tool. We use it all over clinical practice and it's a quick, easy way to determine someone's hearing. But there are a couple of issues that maybe require us to uh, have something in addition that we could use in some cases. So one of the problems with it is that there is this gray zone, like you mentioned, often older people complain about not being able to follow conversations in big, busy restaurants or in, at the reception where there's a lot of noise, a lot of conversations going around. And this will never be captured by the audiogram. The audiogram only tests if you can detect a small sound 
It doesn't really require you to understand any speech. And it also is too simple. Like you can focus all of your attention on having, being able to uh, detect if one sound. But in fact, you need to test hearing in a more realistic, immersive um, scenario where you have multiple things that draw your attention, where you have noise in the background, where you actually need to understand someone's speech. So that's why we want uh, to work with continuous speech like we did in uh, this study. We don't want to use just tones or repeated words. We want to use something that's natural and that's realistic to what will happen in daily life or auditory processing. And we also want it to be something that's objective. And with objective, I mean, we don't really ask the participant to say like, oh, did you hear it or not? Because we cannot do that with young children. We cannot do that with people who are, have dementia, for instance. And sometimes people are also just not honest about it. And it, if it's objective, you also want it to be, it can easily automate it. So these are all the advantages why we think an objective measure that uses continuous speech can really add something to clinical practice and can be in addition to the current audiogram. Wow, thank you so much, that's very helpful. Now, another question that maybe you you don't want to answer because it's too too speculative but but do people complain primarily about this loss of speech uh, perception or do you have also people that say oh i can't listen to music anymore or or doesn't it happen like this and and i'm just thinking about the the ludwig van beethoven thing you know like when when he loses the the, the hearing but yet he was still able to amazingly compose at that time. So did you st study at one point, you know, the relationship to music? It's not something that I studied, um, but it kind of makes me think more about the complaints people have once they have a hearing aid, because the hearing aid is designed to make you hear speech, but it's not designed to make you hear music. And as a result, often music will be somewhat distorted. So it is a complaint, but more when people actually have already hearing aid or a cochlear implant. And therefore we design, like the manufacturers design special music programs so that you can get yeah, specifications and settings on the device that is really focused on music for when you are listening to music. Wow, Jana, that was extremely helpful for me personally because my, you know, my father is 94 and he, He's a pianist also. And he, my brother is buying him one hearing aid after the other, $1,000 hearing aids. And he still complains about, you know, the problem and, and he never wears it. And, and now that makes a lot of sense. So, so you should, <laughs> the, the hearing industry should really take this very serious, I guess, that it's not only about speech that, that you want to use for hearing. So that was very cool. So Jana, so what are the next steps from here? So where do you go in your project and what are the open questions? Mm -hmm. So um, maybe not for me personally, but I'm definitely interested to see what people who have experience with other methodologies can add to this study and maybe to figure out what the precise mechanisms are because we have a lot of hypotheses and they seem to fit together, but we don't have actual proof of where exactly these compensation mechanisms occurs. So I think that's very interesting. For our own research group, I think we are more moving towards getting this 
this technique ready for clinical implementation. So not really looking at group levels anymore, but start looking at individuals, um, combining this technique, not only with looking at the fundamental frequency of the voice, but also to envelope um, the speech envelope or to linguistic features, because all of these can give you a different insight in how the human brain is processing uh, speech. So if you can combine that, and you can combine it actually in a very uh, flexible and time effective way in clinic, then you can have an objective measure that assesses this wide range of uh, abilities for a single individual in a very easy way. And I think that would be really be a revolution in auditory clinical practice. But of course, this is something that will not happen next year. We will need a lot of time to make it happen. But it's good to dream. <laughs> That, that's fantastic. Hey, Jana, you are pretty early in your career. So, so what is your plan? What, what do you want to go from here now? Um, well, I'm finishing my PhD in November. And then I don't know what I'm going to do. So we'll see. Yeah, I, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very hard, I think, for the generation uh, suffering with COVID, uh, you know, this pandemic because you couldn't go to conferences and all that so well don't despair stay in science it, it is fascinating and i tell you it will never get boring so no, that's true i was going to pick in on what you said about covid because it is really true that like the last one and a half years have been have flown by and i really did feel like i didn't get to experience a part of my phd and i think that will be recognizable for many of us so I think it's good that you are aware and yeah, you can yeah. feel that. No, no, no. I have so many great postdocs, but nobody knows them because they couldn't go to the conferences and, uh, and it's very hard to, to see how the, the field moves. So, but I'm so impressed uh, by your, your paper and, and how you handled the question. So, so what are the important take-home messages that you want to have the, the listener remember? Well, I think I want to go up back to what you said all the way in the beginning i checked the world health uh, organization report on hearing and they state that now we have already 1.5 billion people with hearing loss and by 2050 there will be 2.5 billion so hearing loss just happens to a lot of people from about 40 years old onwards and we really don't need to add to that because you go to parties or because you listen to music too loud in your headphones so that's something that I just want to say now that I have a bit of a platform to do it. Protect your ears if you can. But maybe more related to the research uh, that we talked about, I think it's important to be aware that people can have struggles with auditory perception, even though their audiogram is perfectly fine. We have to have more attention for that and maybe see if we can help them. And also believe in the power of your brain. I think it's fascinating to see that those participants with hearing loss, that their brain finds a way to recruit more uh, resources, to change the way it functions, to help them perceive the speech better. So I think that's just a miracle that the brain can do that. Yeah, and no, I think you, that is exactly what, what kind of fascinated me most is that actually the brain is your friend and that helps you to compensate for, for all the problems going on in the periphery. And it's, it's fascinating. And so probably you will see a lot of difference between people that that have high cognition that are able to compensate but then probably there will be an 
exponential breakdown when the brain cannot compensate anymore. And so this is really a fascinating area. Jana, it was wonderful talking to you and I'm really impressed and, and I hope you stay in science. There's so much to be discovered and we need these talents like yourself. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, it was really nice. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.